Hello, everyone. I'm Dominique. And I'm Christina. And we are the Connected in Glass podcast. Every week, we will feature interviews with glass artists who speak to their creative processes and overcoming challenges. These conversations are real and raw. We hope that by sharing these stories, you're able to find some connection and know that you're not alone. We just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. We're super passionate about this project and work for hours every week to bring you this content. So if you'd like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash connected in glass. Also, please consider joining our Facebook group, Connected in Glass Community, where we continue the conversations from these episodes. We'd love to hear from you. This episode of Connected in Glass is sponsored by Diddy Clips. Diddy Clips has changed the way we film our glassblowing videos, and we're proud to be working with them. Today, we're interviewing Martha Proctor. She's a glass artist currently based in Western Massachusetts, who has been working with glass since 2003. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. We're so excited to get to know you. At first, we want to know a little bit about yourself besides glass. So tell us where you live, what you enjoy, and then get us into your story and how you started working with glass. Okay. The the life outside of glass part is a little difficult because I don't really have much of a life outside of glass. I'm from Western Massachusetts, um, Amherst area. Well, I'm originally from Wellesley, Mass., but I've been here for about 20 years. And I live with my partner and three cats. I was sort of getting used to having an empty nest over the last couple of years. I have an adult daughter who's just kind of just kind of flown the coop in the last couple of years. So still kind of adjusting to life, you know, with just the cats. <laughs> Other than just sort of spending quality time with my partner, watching good sci-fi fantasy shows and, you know, um, not, we work a lot. (laughs) So, you know, the sort of, since glass is still really fun for me, that's kind of like my hobby and work together. Cool. And how did you start working with glass? So I actually, I studied sculpture and painting in college and I did a lot of like bronze casting and marble carving and that kind of thing in school. And then once I got out of school and kind of hit the real world as far as making a living as an artist, I discovered that making sculpture, like just fine art sculpture out of bronze was incredibly prohibitively expensive. It's not the kind of thing you can do without a ton of resources, just kind of without any kind, you know, without the resources to build your own, to build, make your own work, that kind of thing. So I kind of fell back on what I had been doing as a teenager and, you know, kind of all along I had been making jewelry, doing beadwork, like bead weaving type stuff, and then making clothing to sell, just very crafty things, both before, during, and after I went to, went to school. So at a certain point when I realized that just making sculpture wasn't going to cut it as a, as a 
you know, full-time career at the time, I was, I had always been interested in working with glasses a medium. So kind of the way that I wanted to get into the, the easiest way that I found to get into it in the circumstances that I was in, there is a uh, school, a craft school called Snow Farm here in, in Williamsburg, Massachusetts. And they teach lamp working classes, glass blowing classes, as well as a bunch of other mixed media photography and weaving and stuff like that. So I just kind of, I signed up for a bead making class with Nancy Toby and learned how to make soft glass beads, just like a three day intensive workshop. Immediately fell in love with it. My plan was just to learn how to do it. And hopefully I, I did all along, even from the time I started the class, I had the sort of the idea that I would build my own studio and make this kind of a, a part of my work because I was already making and selling jewelry. So learning how to make beads and incorporate them into my work was kind of a natural flow. And then at the same time, I was thinking if I can just learn how to melt glass, I can eventually learn how to make pipes, which was kind of something I had always dreamed of being able to do, but had just no idea how to how to get that information, how to get access to that kind of training. So so I started out with that class in 2003 and it was, she was great. I learned so much from her. It just three days of like mind blowing experience of just, you know, putting glass rods in the flame and just being like, this is what I want to do forever. So just with, just sort of armed with that knowledge and the kind of the handouts that she gave us as far as, you know, buying equipment and knowing what to get and how to do kind of a safe setup. I was just sort of fortunate enough to have my mom's help to set up a studio in my basement, just to sort of like the, the, the typical kind of bench, lamp working bench with fairly adequate ventilation <laughs> and just a bead kiln and just kind of a rudimentary setup. So that's basically how I got into doing it. I was a single mom at the time, mostly when I started doing glass, I was mostly just working part-time as an assistant in a pottery studio. But so I just kind of spent my time, spent like about a year just making beads. Eventually I started working at a bead store in Northampton that's no longer there, but it was a wonderful bead store. And I was selling my jewelry there. And as I was learning how to make beads, I started bringing them in. After about it, I would say about like nine to 12 months, I started bringing them in to show my coworkers. And eventually they agreed with me that they were good enough to start trying to, you know, put it, put on the market to put out for sale. So I was kind of in that position where I could kind of test the waters very, very carefully with, with my beads. And by that time I had started making Boro, Boro beads on the mandrel. So that was kind of like, that, that was the thing that I did for a bunch of years. I was just making Boro beads on the mandrel and not working you know, not working with hollow borough at, at all for the most part until years later. How did working at a bead store impact your creativity? Did you find that you were able to see what customers might like and follow yeah. along with that yeah, or like yeah. see what other was, people are doing? Yeah, it was actually great. It was very synchronous at the time. I loved working there. And it was, you know, just like a perfect combination, like the, the being able to see what customers liked, being able to bring in my work and show it was sort of risk-free, you know, I could put stuff 
I could I could put stuff on the shelves or under the shelf, you know, under under the under the glass, right? And and not really have to be trying to sell it or having to. It wasn't like I it was on consignment because I was there every day. So, you know, it was very sort of like a safe environment to kind of test the response to my work. It wasn't. I didn't really sell a lot because, you know, I was more making jewelry with the beads and then, you know, this, the type of focal beads that I was making were very large, very expensive, you know, according to most of the customers that would come in, they were, they would, they would love them. They were fascinated by them, but they didn't really, you know, they weren't really sure how to incorporate them into the, into their work. So it was just more of like, kind of learning as my work was getting better, kind of getting really positive feedback and then kind of gaining the confidence to go from there and to start selling at, at more like um, focused bead shows. You know, in, I don't know if you guys know Lewis Wilson and his best bead show in Tucson. So that was like almost right away. I was invited by a friend to share a table at one of his shows. I think it was in 2004. And so I got kind of indoctrinated into that community and that world of going to the bead shows and setting up a table. <clears throat> so, it, uh, and I loved doing that. I loved going to Tucson and I loved kind of knowing what was behind the scenes in Tucson as far as the wholesale bead market and then being able to go back to the store in Northampton and have all of this kind of information and, and, and behind the scenes kind of understanding of how that industry worked. So yeah, I, I was very informed by it and very inspired by it, seeing everybody else's work and, you know, just getting a sense of how to make, how to incorporate my beadwork that I had been doing for years and years with the glass beads that I was making now. And, and, and then just being able to present the individual beads in a nice way so that people who, who were hobbyists, who were bead collectors would actually come by and buy these giant, you know, tooth knockers that I was making. <laughs> and then how did you make the shift into hollow forms? And was it a crazy difference between like being in the bead world and then moving into like the pipe industry? Did you find that you lost the people that were following you or did they kind of shift with you? So when I started doing the bead shows in Tucson with the Lewis Wilson bead shows, there was a bunch of pipe makers there who had recently suffered from the operation pipe dreams. They hadn't, I'm not sure how many of them were actually like dealing with actual legal issues, but all of them had been impacted severely at the time by the, just the fact of Operation Pipe Dreams when the, you know, the, all the sort of the glass pipe industry was, was raided and, and a lot of sh shops were shut down and it became a lot more dangerous for people to do what they had been doing. So I met a lot of pipe makers turned bead makers at those shows. There was kind of a cool guy uh, click of pipe makers there that, you know, I didn't at the time, like I was a little bit older than them and I was a single mom and I wasn't really like socially, I didn't really necessarily connect. I mean, I, they were all very nice and I made friends with them, but I couldn't get any of them to talk to me about pipe making. I wanted desperately to like get in the club so that I could learn from somebody how to actually make pipes and, and kind of get the secrets. It was still a little bit too early for there to be a lot of information online. And people were also scared to just share that information. 
So, but it was, it, it was definitely informative because they were taking their, the knowledge they had from working hollow and, and were, and making beads with it and making things that were legal to sort of sell out in the open in Arizona. So I got to really appreciate, got to know a lot of these people and got to really appreciate the level of skill that they had, which was phenomenal. And I also got to see a lot of the sort of the Team Japan people and what they were doing. So I was still, I was just absolutely determined to learn how to make pipe and to participate in that industry. But I, I think a combination of people being frightened by Operation Pipe Dreams and just being a woman in, in that in that environment, just a, a little bit, maybe like five to 10 years older than the average guy that was making pipes at the time, it was a little bit hard for me to get in there. So I decided to start making little one hitters on the, like I was building them on the mandrel. I had already been making hollow beads on the mandrel and they were, they were gigantic. As I said before, I was making these big hollow bumpy beads and so I kind of figured out that if I put a couple, like two or three hollow bead forms next to each other on the mandrel, I could build out that shape. And then I would cold work that. And then I would make a little cone off the end of the mandrel and cold work the inside of it. It was the most time consuming and tedious process for a one hitter in, in the world, but they were beautiful and people actually really loved them. And I was starting to do I was fuming them, like really heavily fuming the surface of them. So they had this kind of metallic sheen and just the shaping and the kind of uniqueness of them, I guess, because nobody else, like who, nobody else was really like resorting to making one hitters on the mandrel that, that just wouldn't occur to most people, I guess, because they would just make it out of tubing. So, so it kind of like, it was my first experience of, going into a shop there was a head shop the hempist in northampton right down the street from me that there's they sold pipes they sold they actually sold glass supplies like lamp like boro supplies rods and tools and equipment but they also sold clothing and jewelry so i was consigning jewelry to them and then i started bringing in my little one hitters and those started selling in that store so then people were kind of encouraging me to try making pipes since the the one hitters were going well. And then also it was frustrating because they took forever. I had to cold work them and they broke really easily because they were just very delicate, just the nature of the way they were built. So I still couldn't really get anyone to teach me how to make pipes. So I just sort of, at, at a certain point, I just sat down, I bought some tubing. I sat down, I kept trying it and getting discouraged it was just a mess and I really couldn't quite crack the code of working hollow until around 2012, I guess. I started reading the melting pot, the forum it was kind of like more of a pipe makers forum. And that had, that came across my radar and there was suddenly like a lot of the secrets and the techniques and the answers to questions were available online where they hadn't been before. So I kind of like, resolved one day to just sit down and I was like, I'm going to keep failing until I figure this out rather than just kind of trying it, ending up with a bunch of trash on my bench and, and walking away from it. Um, 
so yeah, that, that's basically like I just kind of sell, I just kind of learned from from the online resources and just trying it over and over again until I could sort of manipulate some tubing and actually get something get something done. It took me about a month. It was just total failure, which was you know I wasn't really used to at the time. So you know it, just, it was like just sort of push through that experience to to get to the the point where I could actually make a pipe off mandrel and be happy with the results. And I was making them on a minor too at first. Like when I, I moved up from a minor to a Lynx and worked on the Lynx for so long. I don't remember the year, but it was maybe 2013, 2014. I had been making pipes for a couple of years before I actually got the Phantom. I got a Sidewinder and then I upgraded to a Phantom. But yeah, like a lot of that stuff that I started out with was on a minor. And I would show like pipe makers and they'd be like, you didn't make this on a minor. And I'd be like, yes, I did. You know? Did you take the styles that you were making your beads with and then integrate them into your new like hollow forms as you were learning? Or did you kind of start developing new styles as you went along? No, not I didn't really take those styles because what I did take was kind of my knowledge of the of the color palette. Like I found that making beads for all those years, I had a very intimate knowledge of the color palette, Mamka and North Star and Glass Alchemy. And and like, you know, the, the older sort of more discontinued ones now. And I, at the time that, that was kind of like the biggest thing that I took from my, from my bead making experience, the actual techniques I couldn't really translate because what I was doing on with, like I was either making hollow bumpy beads or these very large focal, like solid beads. And so they had a lot of like implosion effects and like layered encasements and stuff like that. So there was no way to kind of translate that. You know, I had, I had like a whole series of gallery, I forget what I called them, starry night marbles and beads that were like a silver foil and, and silver mesh over cobalt and encased in clear. And I couldn't, I wanted to, but I couldn't quite bring that over into a hollow piece. So for the most part, I just kind of looked at the, you know, the, the pipes that I loved and the pipe makers that I loved. And I had a, a pipe from the nineties that I had just had just kept as an example of a masterpiece. And um, the maker, he doesn't make pipes anymore and he's not well known in the pipe industry, but he's one of the best pipe makers I've ever seen. So I had like a couple of his pieces and I just studied them intensively and tried to mimic what he had done you know now now I sort of knew a little bit of, of fuming and I knew my sort of color theory so I tried to incorporate some of what I saw him doing into my early pipes actually my very first pipes were all bumpy and like I still have a couple of them and they're ridiculous like they were like these big hollow forms with just giant bumps like hobnails all over them and I can't believe anybody bought them but you know, <laughs> I pretty quickly learned that I had to kind of, you know, melt the bumps in if I really wanted to like, <laughs> like make my stuff look like a sort of legitimate pipe. <laughs> Did you transition from like being in the bead world and having like beady customers into the pipe world and the yeah. pipe customers? Did those translate or do you feel like you kind of like yeah. lost or I lost, I lost those, the beady customers. 
so the huge difference for me was that I went from, I got lots of really positive feedback for my beads. You know, I, people loved them. I got so many compliments and that was great, but the financial support wasn't there. I had beads and I still do that. I made years and years ago that I would take to shows show after show year after year, I would have the same beads in my case. And I was always making more and selling a little bit here and there. But the level of turnover, the level of sales, just it just wasn't anything like what I experienced when I started making pipes. So I went from having inventory that was even years old in my case to having my inventory when I started making pipes turnover every couple of months. And that was mostly that it was a completely new audience. And it was just it was also a lot of like right around the time when I started using Instagram and getting a lot of sales and wholesale shops and retail sales through Instagram. So I was kind of always a pipe maker on Instagram. There was no real social media audience other than like my early Facebook, you know, for, for my beads and jewelry. So I really didn't feel like I didn't really get any backlash. There was nobody who was like, what are you doing? You know, (laughs) but I did have to sort of adjust to the different culture mostly online culture but um, that was more like interacting with peers than with customers with customers it was just kind of like I found that my work was just appreciated and you know I still sell beads occasionally but there I now I just do like I, I mostly just make hollow beads from tubing you know and it's very rare it's just you know every once in a while somebody will ask me to make them and I'll and I'll make some for dreadlocks or something but Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely not the same audience. Can you tell us the different ways that you make your income? Do you mostly do wholesale things or do you do custom orders and do you get them through like your Instagram or through word of mouth? For the most part, up until about a year ago, I would say that about 85% of my sales were retail sales on Instagram. And then the rest was wholesale. So I would only have like one or two wholesale orders going every few months. And just for local shops, like I have a, a Lily's in Worcester. They've been supporting my work since I, since I started making pipes. And nor- the same with Northern Lights in Connecticut. Just a couple of shops that have just been like so great to me the whole time. So I still try to keep work in, you know, on their shelves, but it got to the point where I was just busy with retail auctions and retail sales and custom requests on Instagram, which was great. That was probably like the, you know, kind of the heyday (laughs) for me because, you know, you dealing with customers is, it's not that bad. Most customers are really polite to me. Like I haven't had that many terrible experiences. I've had a few, but I just feel like my work appeals to maybe a slightly older older demographic and people are mostly respectful and easy to work with. And, you know, I just love doing that at the same time in the last six months to a year, the Instagram has changed a lot. So now I don't really get any retail sales on there. Just the the algorithm has changed. And even though I'm sort of producing the same work and doing the same things, I'm just not getting the same kind of customer interaction So now I'm more relying on wholesale again. I'm kind of falling back on now. I would say that my 
sales are probably like 70 to 85% wholesale and, and it's completely uh, flipped around. And that's only been since, not even since the beginning of the pandemic, but like during the first year and a half or two years of the pandemic years, everything was kind of like business as usual for me. But just in the last, I would say six to eight months, it probably really switched around. And when you were taking all those like custom orders, were they customers that were coming to you because they liked your style and they wanted you to make something within your style to suit their needs? Or <laughs> like, were you out, were you saying no to things that were outside of your style? Yeah, you know, there's always that person who says like, oh, I love your work. Can you make me a Hello Kitty bong? You know, and you're just like, well, why? <laughs> you know, definitely a few of those but no for the most part I, I mean honestly I think I've been really lucky I see some sometimes I see like posts on Facebook of customer interactions and the things that people go through and I, I mean I've had a few really difficult ones but I've been pretty lucky people usually just say can you make me something like this you know just like something that I posted in the past or can you make something like this in purples and blues or whatever and generally, if they ask me to make something that's like either exactly the same as something I've made in the past or just entirely different, I'll kind of like try to work with them a little bit. I don't like, I, I can't replicate stuff. I just, if somebody says I want this exact shaping, I'll just kind of be like, well, I can try, but you know, there's definitely no guarantee that it's going to come out the same shape or just everything is so unpredictable the way I work. I don't really do... I don't really do have like a, like a production style workflow. So everything kind of comes out I would, a little bit unique, a little bit its own style. And it's a lot of times it's just kind of like the glass has its own say in what happens with a piece. So, so yeah, customs, I'm always a little bit like when somebody says, do you do customs? I always answer that with, it depends. What do you, what, what would you like to have? You know, what are you interested in? And then we go from there because I'm certainly not going to make a sculptural piece for somebody, you know, do a figure or, or a face or something like that or write letters on, on a piece. That's just, there's always somebody else who's better at doing that, who can do it better and for cheaper than, than what I would need but at the same time some custom requests are incredibly inspiring and challenging you know somebody asked me to make an upright bubbler and I hadn't been doing that and I was finally like okay I gotta figure this out I gotta come up with a design for this and I'm very happy that I finally sat down and, and said like okay I'll try it you know because now that's an that's another sort of design that I can that I can turn to can you talk a little bit about how you price your work, especially doing so many like one-off pieces? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not going to be very helpful. On <laughs> I kind of just go with what the market will, will bear. I don't use the formula of hours and materials. I, I kind of just go with what what people will like for a while it was very easy to price because what I wanted for a piece was the same exact price that things would go for at auction if I would just post an auction on Instagram and let it go for a couple of days or a day it 99% of the time it would just hit that target price and and I'd be happy with that so I would say you know I'd really like to get $120 for this piece. And it would be somewhere between $115 and $130 when the auction kind of wound down. So I knew I was, you know, getting that right. 
Although at the same time, I've had people telling me for years that my work is underpriced. And I know that I spend way more time, like I work very slowly. So I spent way more time on each individual piece than what you would think based on the pricing. But I also just don't know if the market could bear kind of if I were to actually go by how much time I spend. If I make two or three pieces in a 12 hour sitting, you know, if I were to do the math on that, it would probably be very depressing. <laughs> if I were to actually calculate the materials and the and the hourly rate that I was getting for stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just more... I, I definitely have, I had one friend who's very, you know, sort of immersed in the industry who really just knows the, you know, just has been around for a long time. And when we first met, he had seen my work online and he said to me, I had just assumed that you, he was like, oh, so you make a living doing this? And I was like, yeah, he was like, I had just assumed that you were like independently wealthy and doing this as a hobby because your stuff is so cheap for what, you know, for the work that clearly goes into it. And I was like, okay, I have to raise my price. You know, as soon as that conversation happened and I, I actually did go home and raise my prices, you know, uh, quite a pretty significantly nothing like it wasn't like I doubled them or anything but I had to put like I had to definitely put a little jump in there and that was working great until this whole thing with Instagram and the the pandemic you know the sort of the recession and and then Instagram algorithms and this whole perfect storm of like you know economic turmoil that hit so you know I once then I started having to go back to like what will people actually pay for things you know I'm still asking what I'm asking but I'm selling a lot less at, at that at that price people keep telling me if you just double your prices it'll it'll stuff will sell better but I don't really have the guts to test out that theory because then what do you do if it doesn't sell are you supposed to just like double your prices and then go back to like just be like everything's half off for the rest of your life <laughs> it's very confusing has there ever been a time where you're like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Glass isn't for me. I need to find some other thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When I was making beads before I started making pipes and raising a teenager and um, just struggling, I wasn't able to do, I wasn't able to travel to shows as much and stuff just wasn't selling. I kind of lost the lost the plot there for a while with glass there was about a year where I didn't you know I went down in the studio a couple of times but I really didn't turn on my torch for almost a year at a certain point and that was where that was kind of like the breaking point where I decided I had to learn work hollow and and really make pipes if I was gonna kind of keep doing this that I had to change what I was doing because making beads it wasn't so much about the glass it was just the frustration of making stuff and and not really having not really having the stuff move, you know, having the same stuff in my, in my inventory, just going on four or five years looking at the same beads and still trying to put them out there and sell them. It was just ridiculous. So I kind of gave up for a little while, but as soon as I started, once I kind of made up my mind that I was going to learn how to work hollow and I kind of did that thing where I bought tubing and I sat down and just committed to making a ton of trash for the month, I got really excited about it again. It was, I was entirely just so inspired. Are there any lessons that you would want to tell your younger self? Okay. So number one lesson is uh, don't ever do consignment. Just don't. 
I've never heard any kind of success story with consignment. It's just a nightmare from beginning to end, and it's it's never worth it. And that that kind of ties into the other lesson, which I, I feel it's important to figure out a way when you're first starting out to you should really be free to work and learn for at least a year before you really need to start selling your work. So I know that like, I ha- I, I don't know if this is a lesson for my younger self, but just a, a lesson for, you know, the a hypothetical younger self would be just give yourself the space, whether it's having, you know, just whatever other support system, you whatever other financial support you need so that you can, really work to the point where you have like a good, a good foundational stable of skills before you really kind of go out there and start trying to sell your work. Because I feel like situations like consignment and um, like that, I feel like there's a little bit of desperation that happens when you first start out where you, you want to sell your work and people can kind of take advantage of that because they know that you need to sell your work to get more materials to, you know, to keep going. And, and if you're just kind of like, if you're able to, by whatever means necessary, if you're able to keep buying materials and keep learning and keep working on the torch until you kind of have like a little bit more of like a consistent skill set to offer. And so you're not kind of roped into these shady consignment deals or underselling your work at a whole, at a shop that, and that's still, that's going to be work that, you know, down the road, you're going to be ashamed that you ever let anybody see that stuff. So I think that that's, that's the main thing. Oh, and then another thing was that to take advantage of, like, if you're, when you're, when you're in, when you're young, like in your twenties and thirties, you know, there's a lot more impetus to be social, to get out there, to, to travel, to socialize, to create social networks. And that's something that I would tell myself to really take, to be more committed to taking advantage of, because it does get harder as you get older. It's, and in this industry, it's really important to have that type of social network. It is a huge part of really finding your footing and having some security in this industry to be able to interact, doing the, whatever the wholesale shows, doing collaborations, you know, all that stuff and just sharing skills and resources. And it's something that I, I do wish that I had been able to do a little bit more. Like when I started out, I felt like I was just a step behind as far as just being able to really take advantage of that social network that was that was built around around glass both bead making and pipe making really so i think that's it that and just what my mom said when i started which was just make beautiful things and the rest will come which i love and you know (laughs) oh that's a good thing to always think about yeah Mm. yeah so good thank you thank Thank you you both it was nice meeting you yeah Yeah, you too too. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Connected in Glass. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more information on the artists we interview and for updates on the podcast.